Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the Ocean Protect podcast, talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect, committed to change. Jack Ordy, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast. Is that how you pronounce your name? Yeah, it rhymes with naughty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ordy rhymes with naughty. I won't forget that in a hurry, uh, Jack. You've come via a recommendation from a mutual friend of ours, Jennifer Lavers, shout out, from the Adrift Lab. And you're actually, we should, we should explain uh, where you're calling from. So first up, you're actually a lecturer at the University of Tasmania. Is that, is that right, Jack? Yep, yep. So I'm on a 50-50 teaching and research position at the University of Tasmania in the med school over here. Yeah, yeah. And obviously you, you come with a bit of an accent. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a New Zealander, and I've also spent five years in the UK, and now I'm here in Australia. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'll get back to that UK experience in particular, but uh, obviously at the university, so you're doing uh, researching and lecturing, but your focus, your primary, I guess, focus area for your research is how inflammation can contribute to disease. Is that yep. right? Yep, yep, that's it. With a particular focus on sort of Am I right in saying neurological or brain disease? Is that correct? Yeah, so uh, I've sort of, you know, I come from the uh, immune system's perspective and I look at how inflammation can drive disease in a number of diseases. My research career has sort of meandered through a a range Mm. of subjects, but uh, neuroinflammation is particularly interesting and it drives a lot of diseases, including dementia, like Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, I'm I'm keen to get your backstory because I've I've looked at your LinkedIn profile in particular, and I, I think you've got more degrees than I've had hot dinners. But you've studied all over the world. You've obviously got your undergraduate degree in in University of Otago, and then you did a PhD in in, in University of Otago, and then you went over to Man- University of Manchester. And I've heard you describe in one of your talks is that that's the number one place to research inflammation. Is that right? Yeah, particularly neuroinflammation. It's got a massive yeah. neuroinflammation team and they're definitely global leaders there. Yeah, yeah. And let's, 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 uh, before we uh, get too far into the detail of previous studies, can you, for the listeners, and this was a really interesting thing I heard you talk about in one of your talks. And, and as a side note, as, as a lecturer, you surely got to be one of the, the the favorite lecturers, if not the favorite lecturer at University of Tasmania, because you know obviously there's a lot of scientists in the world, but there's very few scientists that are actually very good communicators, and you are clearly an excellent communicator and very sort of I guess you sort of put it in a language that a layman like me can understand. So for that, I thank you. Um, well, I so appreciate you- the compliments. It's always nice to hear things like that. 
Yeah, but certainly, can, can I get you to actually explain the history of Aloise Alzheimer's and I guess how he has influenced, obviously how he discovered the disease that we now know Alzheimer's, but also I guess the, the historical context of Alzheimer's disease and where it kind of sits currently, because I, I found this fascinating. Right. Wow. I mean, so well over a little bit over a hundred years ago, Eloise Alzheimer's mm. was working in an insane asylum. That's what it was called back then mm. uh, in Germany. And he had these two patients come in that at a very young age for them, you know, in their fifties and sixties and seventies, they had severe memory deficits and they mm. had, so they lost the ability to make new memories and they were starting to lose their memory going back in time. So, you know, mm. to them, the date seemed to be regressing backwards and he provided the he, he described these unique bunch of symptoms including memory loss mm. that then spread out and started affecting their language their personality and eventually these people unfortunately died and so he took very thin sections of their brain he did an autopsy and said we've got to look at what's going on here that's causing these problems and when mm. he looked in there there were these protein tangles in the mm. brain now, the best description I could say of this is that, you know, when you take an egg, it is runny and fluid. But then when mm. you cook it, it suddenly becomes solid and rubbery. We mm. call that in science denaturing. The proteins in the egg have now all stuck together and become mm. a solid, clumpy mass. Well, Aloise Alzheimer's noticed these solid aggregates, these clumpy masses in the brains of these patients. And he proposed that that's what was causing the disease. And we'd focus for over 100 years on mm. these protein aggregates. But Aloise Alzheimer's also described that there was other cells surrounding these protein aggregates and the body was responding to these rubbery mm. protein-like mm. things in the brain. And we basically ignored these responses mm. to these protein aggregates for over 100 years of research until we started cottoning on in the late 90s that perhaps the way our body responds to these mm. protein aggregates, these rubbery bits, is what's driving the disease. And what Aloise Alzheimer's was actually describing, what we now understand, was inflammation. He was describing yeah. that inflammation was happening in the brains of these patients. And we can imagine these patients have probably had an inflamed brain for 20 to 30 years. Now, you and I know if you roll mm. your ankle, if you twist your ankle mm. playing football, you chuck yeah. ice on that because you want to cool that inflammation down. And that's inflammation around your ankle just going on for a week or two. It hurts. It causes tissue damage. It's really, it's, it's not a good process to be going on. Imagine that happening in your brain for 20 mm. to 30 years. It's going to cause a lot of problems. And so that's what my research focused on. When you're at the University of Manchester, you were focusing on this, is it IL-1 switch that you refer to? Right, yeah. So how does the body coordinate these responses, these mm. inflammatory responses? And essentially, it sends out chemical alarms that tells the body there is tissue damage going on, there may be an infection going on. It sends out these molecules that are alarm signaling molecules to your body. Mm. One of the major ones is one called IL-1. Now, it stands for interleukin-1, which is a bit of a complicated name, but literally it means the first compound 
one found in leukocytes, which is Greek for white blood cells. So mm. you might have heard of red blood cells and white blood cells. Your white blood cells are your immune cells. And they found this chemical in there that was sending out and activating the inflammatory response. So what we found essentially was that IL-1 was the central alarm that was coordinating this inflammatory response in Alzheimer's disease, this really mm. horrible dementia. And I guess your the focus of your research was about basically trying to turn this IL-1 switch off. So instead yep. of the IL-1, uh, I guess, I don't know what you'd refer to it, but basically instead of having that sort of autoimmune or inflammatory response to this problem, you're essentially looking to switch that ability off. Yeah, so we we designed drugs that would target just IL-1 because what it turned out was throughout the research field was that some of the inflammatory responses are good and some of them are bad. Good way to think about this is some of your inflammatory response is cells coming in and gobbling up all the damage. So they come in and they try and deal with the damage and the debris that has built up wherever the, the signaling molecules come from. But there's another part of your immune system that comes in and tries to sterilize the area. And this may surprise you, but your body produces bleach, chemically identical to wow. bleach, household bleach. And it produces bleach during inflammation for the exact same reason we use bleach in the kitchen is to sterilize the area. You've got to, mm. so if there might be an infection, you want to sterilize it so there's no bacteria, no viruses. So we have cells that come in and produce bleach to sterilize that area. But bleach is damaging. You imagine putting bleach mm. in your brain. That is not, yeah. a, that's not ideal, right? So IL-1 we found was key for initiating that damaging part of the inflammatory response, but it didn't block the important repairing parts of the inflammatory response. We used to try and suppress the entire immune system, and you might have heard of steroids mm. to suppress mm. the entire immune system. What we now learned is there was a bit of a brute force approach, and we mm. needed a scalpel. We needed to go in there and molecularly target just the damaging inflammation, the inflammation-producing bleach, for example. Yeah, wow. Look, uh, and I, I heard you talk about, and I, I'm, I'm keen to dive into the research around the link between disease and microplastics in particular, but just on that last issue of uh, Alzheimer's disease, can you give people uh, a feel for sort of, I guess, the proportion of the population that actually do suffer from, well, will suffer from Alzheimer's disease, and also, I guess, the funding that Alzheimer's disease research gets, say, relative to the likes of, say, cancers and cancer treatment? Right, so it's an age-related disease, and because mm. we're living longer, more people are getting it. And so if you live to the age of 85, roughly a third of people will get Alzheimer's disease if they live to the age of 85. Mm. And it goes up mm. to 40% over the age of 90 start to suffer from Alzheimer's disease. So it's a really devastating condition. And we think by the year, because we're all living longer, by the year 2050, there might be 100 million people globally affected with Alzheimer's disease, which is a massive scale. And if we look at what really what I want to say is that cancer research gets about five times the funding of Alzheimer's research and dementia research mm, in general. Mm, mm. And because of that, they made major breakthroughs, major breakthroughs. Mm. The life expectancy, if you have cancer, has extended massively. 
And the chemotherapies for some cancers are way less harsh with less side effects and much more targeted. I actually have personal experience of people I know that are taking these Nobel Prize winning drugs that have been built off this cancer research funding that has saved their lives. Like there are very important people in my life that have had their lives saved by these brand new compounds. Mm -hmm. There was just a Nobel Prize given out for a brand new cancer treatment that's doing massive things. Essentially, what's cool about that cancer treatment is it gets your immune system to target the cancer. It's almost yeah. the opposite yeah. of my research. It says, yeah. go get yeah, the immune system. So they were immunologists as well, which is amazing. And if dementia research got that same funding, I'm sure we would make the same breakthroughs, but we're really yeah. not getting that. And so currently there is no uh, drugs that work in Alzheimer's disease. So if you're diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, purely we talk about counseling, we talk about care. There is no disease-modifying drugs going on right now. And you think if we found, a, a say, a cure for that sort of inflammation, surely most diseases are actually, I guess, formed as a byproduct of inflammation. So if you can develop a cure for, say, Alzheimer's disease, you'd almost certainly find links to mitigating the impacts of other diseases which are linked to inflammation, which, in fact, might actually be all diseases, really. I want to be careful in overstating this, but there, there was yeah. a clinical trial blocking IL-1 and this that inflammatory signaling molecule. Mm. And that clinical mm. trial was for heart attacks, trying to prevent heart attacks. Mm. And what happened was they found that they reduced heart attacks by 50%, but they also reduced cancer deaths yeah. by 50%. They reduced osteoarthritis by like 90% and gout by a huge percentage as well. They realized they had all these huge knock-on health benefits. The one problem that they had was that there was an increase in infections because mm. if you block the ability you know, for mm. that bleach, yeah. you're preventing that sterility area. So the next research to go on is how do we mitigate those uh, infection risks and mm. can we use even finer tools to target the immune system even more specifically? And just one example on that, it gets a bit complicated, but... IL-1 is can be released in response to sterile tissue damage, which is tissue damage where there's no infection, or infection. So your body detects that there's bacteria and it produces IL-1. Those pathways are separate. So if we can mm. develop drugs, and this is a bit what my research was about, if we can develop drugs that just target the sterile pathway to IL-1 production, then hopefully we would get the medical benefits that we saw from that massive clinical trial that was done, and we would prevent that negative side effect of opening up the patient to getting an infection. I don't want to say inflammation is at the core of every disease, but manipulating the immune system in a really precise way has been shown to be a huge therapeutic potential in a really mm. wide number of diseases, from cancer yeah. to dementia to cardiovascular disease. Yeah, look, it's fascinating research, and it's just surprising for me that it hasn't got the funding it probably deserves. Like, you can imagine the economic benefits of essentially, for example, curing Alzheimer's by having, and the economic benefits of a third of, of, of the aging population essentially not having uh, Alzheimer's. Because you imagine for every person with Alzheimer's, they might need one or two carers uh, at any sort of X number of hours a day. Like the economic impacts of that must be just out of this world. So Huge. I guess, uh, yeah. So look, I don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole of Alzheimer's because yep. I reckon there's yep. a series on that. But yeah. I am definitely keen because there's obviously a strong link, appears to be a strong link between inflammation and disease. And, and I know that a, a key focus of your more recent research in particular is around the impact of microplastics on human health and, yep. and wildlife. 
And we've had various guests on the show before about just how, I guess, dire the microplastic situation is. We had uh, Janice Brani recently from University of, oh, gee, was I think Utah, talking about just the crazy concentrations of plastic in, in even our natural, uh, you know, American uh, national parks, et cetera. And obviously yeah. we've had the likes of Jennifer Lavers, et cetera, talking about a microplastic and plastic pollution on, on our uh, wildlife, et cetera. And we hear anecdotally the stories of, oh, yeah, microplastics are everywhere we consume about a credit card's worth of plastic every week or something like that which is probably a bit overstated but i've really struggled to actually hear anyone talk about the link between this microplastic contamination in our environment and often ourselves and how that actually impacts on the health of society of humans so i know Mm. i know a lot of your research is quite new but can you give people a bit of a feel for your understanding of how microplastic pollution is impacting on human health in particular many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey they can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah, so it was a bit of a peculiar research transition. You can imagine from Alzheimer's disease to microplastics. But actually, remember me talking about those rubbery protein aggregates. To your body... That's, that occurs in Alzheimer's disease in the brain. To your body, that looks like a particle, like an insoluble, indigestible mm-hmm. particle. That's what it looks like. And so it activates this particulate recognition response in your immune system to cause inflammation. And I was watching a few years back a David Attenborough documentary about microplastics, and he mentioned that they're finding it in people's muscles and lungs mm-hmm. and in their stomach but they don't know what it does to the body. And I thought, I bet you I know exactly what it does to the body. I bet you it activates this pathway and causes inflammation. And so I did a very crude experiment involving a Swiss army knife nail file and a piece of plastic that I picked up from the rubbish bin. And I sterilized the plastic and I nail filed it to generate some microplastics. And this is a classic Friday afternoon experiment when you feel like, (laughs) ah, just do something a bit fun, a bit silly. So I I ground it off. And um, what I did was I put it on immune cells to see how inflammatory it is. And what we do whenever you design an experiment, you have what's called a negative control. And a negative control is something that does nothing. So that might Mm. be saline, you know, salt water, that does nothing. But you also have a positive control. And this way, you know, Mm. everything works. So you put something Mm. that you know is incredibly inflammatory on the cells. So you've got a gauge, you've got a top Mm. and a bottom, Mm. and now you can Mm. see where your treatments fall between. Well, the microplastics that I just randomly generated with a nail file from a Swiss army knife that I then sterilized, they generated more inflammation than my positive control. 
It was through the roof. Really? And so I was like, we've got to investigate this. And one of the first things I found was difficult was how do you scientifically generate microplastics, right? So I popped down to engineering, the engineering department, and over there they were creating uh, parts for aeroplanes. And you need Mm. to make parts for aeroplanes down to a micron scale. It needs to be super accurate. Mm. And so they use these very precise machines that shave off layer by layer to sort of almost reverse 3D print. You could imagine you're shaving Mm. stuff off rather than printing stuff on to build these aeroplane parts. And I said, can you shave me off some pure sterile plastic that I've bought and then we'll sterilize it and then we'll look Mm. at it. And we did that, and it was all through this uh, PA, fantastic PhD student called Barley Lee and my mm. collaborator, David Broth. And we showed that these plastics were inflammatory. And we actually we found it was quite interesting. Different plastics have different inflammatory properties. And one of the scary things was a lot of the plastics that we make clothing and carpet out of, nylon and polyester, were the most inflammatory. And whereas polystyrene wasn't actually that inflammatory, it was quite inert polystyrene compared to those other two. And what's quite scary about that is that those are the microplastics we find in the home and in the office Mm. that we breathe in. My research seems to show that Eating microplastics isn't the major problem. Our gut is kind of designed to deal with nasty particulates going mm. through it all the time. But our lungs are not designed for particles. We know this from coal mining research, smoking research, mm. asbestos yeah. research. But we now know that we are breathing in plastic microfibers all the time. You know, there's a famous late 90s paper that looked at lung cancer tumors that were taken out of humans. And they said, I wonder if there's any plastic in there. And there was. Now, that's not to say that they correlate. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But it is to say that we know there's direct evidence of plastic in human lungs. And we know it's floating around the air all the time. So we're breathing it in. And we know that chronic inflammation of the lungs is bad on so many levels. It causes a buildup of scar tissue. And scar tissue is rigid, but lungs need to be elastic and and breathing in and breathing out. And we also know that chronic inflammation is a a leading cause of cancer in a number of things. So Mm. people with any chronic inflammatory disease have a higher risk of cancer Purely because when you think about bleach and and these other toxic compounds, they're called free radicals or reactive oxygen species that are released by our immune system during inflammation. If we chronically release that, it can damage DNA. And as soon as you start damaging DNA, you bump up that risk of developing cancer. So I have grave concerns about what's going on, but we haven't established that causality yet. We have established that there's plastics are inflammatory. If you put them in lungs... They induce inflammation, and we know that there is plastic in lungs. So we know that people's lungs are probably inflamed from breathing in our nylon particles from our carpet and our polyester particles from whatever jumper we've just pulled off, mm. which aerosolizes mm. a whole bunch of microplastics just as you take your jumper off. Yeah. So I've just had a, a baby boy, and it's my first child, and I was surprised all the baby clothes were made out of plastic. And it was terrifying. I was like, we've just gone ahead and done this and put plastic in all our clothing, all our carpet, without truly understanding the potential negative effects. I call it, I I do this talk called Mind the Gap. And it's basically, in all history, we invent and discover something, and then we decide to put it in everything. And then there's this time gap. 
and where we're putting in everything, we're using it for everything, it's just going everywhere. And then we realize, wait, it's causing a whole bunch of harm, negative side effects and everything like that. And there's a lot of examples. We put asbestos in everything. And then we were like... CFCs, uh, CFCs, uh, everything. Yeah. One, one of my favorite ones is when we discovered radium, which is one of the most radioactive elements in the world. We painted it on the dials of watches so yeah, they would glow in the dark. Yeah, yeah. And so you're like, wait a minute, people walking around with radioactive <laughs> watches. When we discovered X-rays, rich people were paying to get a daily X-ray to invigorate themselves with oh, X-ray oh. energy. <laughs> And it's this gap, it's this gap. And I think we're in that gap with plastics. Naturally, all my child's clothing is good old New Zealand merino wool. I'd also dabble in Australian merino wool, but we all know New Zealand merino wool's the best. <laughs> we, we had and, this discussion. It was actually uh, Rebecca Van Amber from RMIT. Uh, she was actually talking about the microplastic pollution out of clothing and that something like 30% of all microplastics in our oceans comes from laundry discharges, which staggered us. And I, I went to my... Covered and I picked out because I, I do triathlon. I picked out a, my, my cycling outfit, my triathlon outfit, and yeah, it's it's mostly plastic. And I, I, to, to be honest, prior to actually talking to Rebecca, I had never even considered it. And, and you're like, we're doing all this fancy exercise trying to get fit and in, increase our aerobic capacity, but meanwhile, probably breathing all this uh, plastic in. And it's it's bizarre. But also, like you talk about, yes, yeah, probably now carpets and our clothes. But I remember talking to Janice Brownie. Um, she was saying how oceans burp microplastics out of, I guess, the ocean environment into our atmosphere. And she was saying these microplastic particles just get transferred thousands of thousands of kilometres away from their original source and essentially come back to land and, and I guess, into the air we breathe. They do see high concentrations in urban environments, but even in sort of the Yellowstone National Parks and Yosemite and Grand Canyon, they're still seeing crazy levels of contamination uh, just from atmospheric fallout of microplastics. I have grave concerns when a University of Tasmania lecturer with a whole bunch of PhDs and, 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 and degrees starts saying he is gravely concerned around microplastic contamination in us. Because, yeah, we haven't potentially established the direct link between microplastic contamination in our lungs or our bodies, and it causes an X percentage increase of X disease or ailment. But here is, it's not that much of a stretch, is it, really? No, it's not. And it's going to be hard to do that research. Like with, yeah. with, with smoking research, which took us ages to figure out, yeah. it's quite easy. You've got one group who smokes, one group who doesn't. But we're all increasing yeah. our plastic lungs together. It's going to be impossible to find a low mm. plastic group versus a high plastic yeah. group. I will say there is some research done in the 70s. You've got to dig quite deep. And it was looking at Bangladeshi textile workers. And they were finding real lung problems in the people uh, who were making synthetic clothing Mm, Um, mm. because these people are probably at the highest exposure of plastic microparticles. And they were were talking about low breathing outputs and, and so on and so forth. We also see a similar thing with cotton as well. And that's probably because the amount of dust that comes off cotton, plastic mm. doesn't produce as much mm. dust in the manufacturing process. If you, apparently, if you go into a, a cotton milling factory, it's, it's thick with it. And so there's a concentration difference there. But I would love to know the difference between that and say a wool company. Yeah. The other thing I would say is that for the most part, things we breathe in, we can break down. So if you if you breathe in cotton or you breathe in wool, 
even if you breathe in diesel particles and air pollution diesel particles, there's evidence that they do break down over time. It takes a wee while depending on what it is, but they do break down over time. That isn't going to be true for microplastic. And this is a concern for me because, you know, this is why we use plastic because bacteria can't break it down, our bodies can't break it down. So it's great for packaging and it's great for containing liquids because it will never get moldy. It will will never get a mite that can eat it, you know. The reason why we use it is because it's not biodegradable in many respects, but it's not biodegradable by our bodies. And so I have a grave concern that, for example, an immune cell called a macrophage, which means big eater, and they're the ones that go around and eat particulates. When they eat something they can't digest, they release IL-1. That's the response. They induce inflammation by releasing that IL-1 alarm signaling molecule if they eat it. Now, I'm concerned that they eat a piece of plastic can't digest it, they release IL-1 and they die. That's what we've seen in in cell culture. We know that's happening. But then the plastic doesn't go anywhere. So then another immune cell comes wandering along and eats that plastic Mm. again, Mm. releases the IL-1 and then Mm. dies. And there's Mm. nothing that will end that process. If plastic gets embedded in your lungs, I don't see how the body will break it down. So I see it as something that will accumulate throughout your life and potentially could lead to real problems. And we need to do that research. It's not being it's not being funded right now, and we need to do that research. But how would you do that? Re- I think, and I, I hate to say this, but I think the only way to do it is animal models because every human is exposed to plastics. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. Episodes are released weekly, and the next episode will feature part two of this chat. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.